our Advent series this month has been the dawn of redeeming grace. It coincides with the book that's out in the foyer. Hopefully you've picked that up and have been reading through that book by Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. And it's been helping you, preparing you as you've uh, walked through those daily devotionals, preparing you for our times together here on Sunday. We've been walking through Matthew chapter 1 and, and we'll dive into chapter 2 today. It's page 807 if you have a pew Bible this morning. We're going to jump into it again. We've, so far we have walked through, there's, there's four sections that Dr. Ferguson has for us in, in this book of the dawn of redeeming grace. The first section worked through the genealogy of Jesus. That was the first part. That's the first part of Matthew chapter 1. And we worked through that together, pointing out a number of, of different names, a di- number of different parts of, of Jesus' genealogy, and generations that, that led to Jesus. And we pointed out several of the different things that came up in there. And the thing that I, that I wanted to point out that, that I, I made note of is, is the most important part was not any of the names necessarily in Jesus' genealogy, but instead it was the verse 16, the end of the genealogy, ends with a title. And the title was, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, who is called Messiah. That's the hope. All of the genealogy culminates not in a name, but in a title. Jesus comes, and he is the one who will take away the sins of his people. Last week, we looked at the the next part of chapter one was the parents. That was the theme that we looked at last week. And we looked at the three parents that are found in this story. The first was Mary. We walked through a little bit about what we know about Mary. There, there, to be honest, there was nothing noteworthy, nothing extraordinary, nothing unique that we find in Mary except that she was favored by God, Luke tells us, if we look at that part of the story in Luke. She was favored by God, and she was a willing servant. And so Mary, the teenage virgin, becomes the mother of Jesus. That all happens through the second parent in the story, the one that's really not listed, but God the Father impregnates Mary through the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's because God is the Father that we have all that we talked about last week, the, the idea of a, of a virgin birth, which, which is, is unbelievable, and yet shows us that salvation comes only through God, that there's no way for man to, to concoct it. There's no way for us to put it together, but it comes only through the work of God. And it's through that virgin birth that all of God's deity and all of man's humanity can be joined together and found perfectly in one person. It's the only way that humanity can have a representative who does not have the inherited sin that comes from Adam. Because that line was interrupted by God entering into the picture. God is the second parent in this, and that's why we can have God in man. That's why we have the incarnation of Jesus. Because with that, we now have a Savior who knows what we know. He grew like we grew. He understands all that it means to be human. He understands all that it means to be man. We have a Savior that understands it's tempted in every way that we are, Scripture tells us, and yet did not sin. We have a Savior who is like us in every way. 
And then the third parent in the story that we looked at last week was Joseph, the husband of Jesus, or the husband of Jesus, the husband of Mary. He not only is the husband of Mary, but he is the adopted father of Jesus. We don't know a lot about Joseph, but what we do know is that he gives us a picture right here at the birth of Jesus, even before the birth of Jesus, he gives us a picture as he prepares for the birth of Jesus. He gives us a picture of the gospel. He helps us to understand what God is about to do through the birth of Jesus. That he, he could have, Joseph had every right he had every right, he was, he was well within his legal ability to turn his back on Mary. He could have cast her aside. He could have divorced her publicly. He could, have, he could have brought her out into the public square and shamed her and heaped guilt upon her. He possibly even could have had the ability to have her put to death. Joseph could have done all of those things. He could have mocked her and shamed her. But instead, what Joseph does is brings her in. He brings her in closer. He responds to the instructions that were given by the angel. And as the baby is born, he adopts Jesus into his family. He gives Jesus his family name. He trains him into his family business. He cares for all of his needs and leads him and guides him through, through his childhood. He makes him a part of the family and makes him an heir. And Joseph shows us the plan that God has for us. God had every right to turn his back on us. God had every right to let us be found and shamed, found guilty in our sin. God had every right to turn away from us, but doesn't. Through Jesus, God adopts us into his family. God gives us his name and trains us in his family business and then strengthens us and guides us and leads us in. And God, through Jesus, makes us a co-heir with Christ. Joseph gives us a picture of that gospel and God gives it to us in Matthew chapter one. In Matthew chapter two, we continue on in the story. Matthew keeps the story going, makes a jump, probably a couple of years, maybe even, that could have happened here. Let's read it together. In Matthew chapter two, we're gonna begin in verse one. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For you shall from from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise man secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. 
And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warmed in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This morning, I want us to look at the visitors, as Dr. Ferguson puts it. The visitors, and and we're going to break those visitors into three groups today. We have three distinct groups of visitors in this passage of Scripture. We have, we have the first we'll talk about. Those are the ones who come to visit, the visitors who come to visit. The second one that I want to look at just for a little bit is the one who wants to visit. And thirdly, we'll look at a group today that doesn't visit at all. First, we'll look at the ones who came to visit. Those are obviously the wise men that come from the east just as we have walked through this story already, we, didn't, we don't really know very much about Mary. We have a little bit of a picture that we can get from, from Luke's gospel and a little bit that we see here in Matthew's gospel, but we don't have a great picture of who Mary was. We don't have a great picture of who Joseph was. Last week I told you that, that there, are some, there are some scholars and, and commentators that would say that Joseph could have been, possibly could have been, a, a teenager just like Mary probably was, or a more likely scenario is that Joseph probably was older. He maybe had, had already been widowed. His wife, had, he already had a wife that he was, was married to and passed away. He already had older children. There's a strong possibility that was also the case. We don't, to be honest, we don't know for sure. We don't know much about these wise men that show up either. What Matthew tells us is wise men from the east come to Jerusalem. We do just as we did with Mary and Joseph, we do have a little bit of historical context and we have a little bit of church tradition and church history that tell us a little bit about who these wise men from the East could possibly have been. Again, there's all kinds of conjecture, there's all kinds of of ideas and theories about who these wise men were. There's even... There's even, in church tradition, there's even names for the three wise men who came to visit. But we don't know. We don't have any idea. What we know from probability, at least, and again, from historical context, is that these wise men who came from the east probably came from the Babylon area, from from Persia. We learn about some of those wise men from the Old Testament, uh, the, in, the, in the book and story of Daniel, if you remember, the story of Daniel happens uh, after uh, the, the Israelites, and after the Israelites have been conquered, there's only a, a, a nation of Judah for the last portion of, of that, and then the Babylonians come in and they conquer Judah as well, and they march uh, the Israelites out of Judah and they march them to Babylon, or many of them, they march to Babylon and they're exiled out of out of Jerusalem, out of Canaan, out of Israel. They marched to Babylon, and Daniel is one of those young men who's taken to Babylon. He's one of the exiles who is, is exiled to Babylon. And so his story takes place in Babylon, in Persia. 
His story takes place, and it's in that story where we learn much about these wise men, these magi who rule over much of that area. There's a king of Babylon, but his council are these wise men. They have a a strong understanding of science, of agriculture. They know mathematics. They know history. They know astronomy. They even are well-versed in astrology and sorcery and the practices of the occult. They are the scholars of the time. And it's because of that broad understanding, it's because they have so much knowledge about so many different things that they have enormous influence over the people. They are the influencers of the king. They're especially noted, commentators tell us, they're especially noted for their ability to interpret dreams. That's why in in the book of Daniel, in the story of Daniel, when the king has a dream, he calls his wise men in, he calls his magi to him, his advisors, and they are to interpret the dream and they're unable to do it. But Daniel is given a special dispensation, a special grace from God that he might go in, that he might go in and explain these dreams to the king. And that That is what begins to give Daniel great favor. It's what begins to to give Daniel his position and his influence in the kingdom is because God works through Daniel, helping Daniel to do what these wise men, what these magi, what these other influencers and counselors for the king were unable to do. So Daniel is able to do it. Daniel comes in. He's able to have influence and impact into the kingdom. He's one of, he's one of the king's most favored counselors. And so Daniel has, has position and, uh, and authority in the kingdom, in Babylon, while, his, while the Israelites are exiled to Babylon. But Daniel was true to the one true God. And so Daniel, in, through his influence and through his impact, to the people and to the ones that he was, was around, he probably, undoubtedly, would have shared many of the prophecies that we have in the Old Testament before the time of Daniel. He would have shared many of those. He, would have, he probably would have been able to write many of them down. These magi probably had a number of these kinds of things together with them, that resources that they had there that they could peruse and study. Also during this time was was the great libraries of Alexandria where many, again, many of these Old Testament prophecies probably would have been written, probably would have been kept there. There was lots of ways for these magi to know and to understand the prophecies that come before. One of those prophecies was on the screen this morning as you came in. Uh, the, the one that probably led them there the most I, the, with the idea of the star, th- something that they might have been looking for and anticipating and expecting. In Numbers chapter 24, we won't spend much time on it this morning, but if you want to look at it later, it's a great story to look at. There's, there's a, a, a man, a prophet, really, by the name of Balaam. You might know that name because Balaam has a donkey that talks in the story in Numbers chapter 24. 
But Balaam is, is not an Israelite, but has been, has been asked by his king Balak to go and to put a curse on the Israelites because Balak wants to come in and destroy them and take them over. And so he, he, he gets his counselor, Balaam, to come and to, and to pronounce a curse over all of Israel. But God steps in. And Balaam is only able to speak the words that God puts in his mouth. And so Balak, the king, says to Balaam, come over, curse these Israelites so that I might destroy them. And Balaam goes and speaks, and instead of a curse, puts a blessing over the Israelites. King, ba- king Balak is, is furious with Balaam and says, I asked you here to curse them, and instead you, you bless them. Do it again. And so Balaam, again, a second time, speaks, and instead of a curse, puts a second blessing on the Israelites. Again, Balak is furious with Balaam. Balaam says, I can't do anything but say the words that that God has put into my mouth. Balaam says, go, curse them. Now, a third time, you've blessed them twice, curse them. And so in the third time in Numbers chapter 24, you get the verse that was on the screen as you came in. The third supposed curse that is to go on the Israelites becomes a blessing again. And one of those One of those blessings is this prophecy in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. Balaam, speaking over the Israelites, says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter, a new king, will rise out of Israel. And it shall crush the forehead of Moab, and it will break down the sons of Sheth. Balaam is one of the one of the prophecies that the Babylonian magi would have been familiar with. In fact, they probably were, they, they knew, they knew that teaching, they knew that scripture, so they were anticipating that there might be a star, that there might be this star that rises up out of Israel, out of Jacob, and it will announce a new scepter. It will announce a new king. And so, These wise men, one night, look out in the horizon. And lo and behold, there is a star. A star that they had not seen before. A star that they could not comprehend, that they could not understand. It was out of place. It was unusual. It was not what was supposed to be in the the sky that night. There was a new star. They were familiar they were familiar with all the, the astronomy. They were familiar with where the stars and the planets should be. And this one was out of order. This was out of place. It's amazing. It's amazing to me. This is, I, I've had a couple of things happen this last fall where I have, have been reading and, and seeing the, the ability of people before Christ, B.C., people who were able to look into the heavens, look into the stars, and, and see things that I can hardly comprehend. Uh, there was, uh, I, 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 didn't, I don't have this one written down, but there was, there was a, an astronomer who was, who was able to mathematically, I can't hardly comprehend this, but mathematically knew that the planet Neptune existed before anyone had ever seen the planet Neptune in any kind of looking device or telescope because he knew the mathematic probability of how the stars lined up and the way the gravitational pull, all that worked. He knew there was a planet there before anyone had ever seen that there was a planet there. I, I can't even fathom that. But there's another, another one, uh, Aristosthenes. This is one that, uh, so I, I went to, to student conferences 
teacher student conferences at, at Central, and you get to learn all kinds of things by the posters that are hanging up on the walls that the students are working on. One of them was, was uh, the story of Aristophanes. So Jenny and I stood in the hallway and read the story, which is unbelievable to me. We've since looked it up several times to, to reference back to it. Aristophanes lived in 200 BC, 200 years before the birth of Christ. And, and he had the ability, I, 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 again, I, I can't even fathom this, but he was able mathematically to figure out the circumference of the earth 200 years before Christ. He mathematically figured out, I don't even know, I can't even tell you how he did it, but he figured out the circumference of the earth uh, so closely that when we actually were able to find out the true circumference of the earth, he was, he was super close within a small percentage off. He also, he also mathematically, again, figured out the distance to the sun within just a few percentages, 200 years before Jesus. There was no Hubble telescope for him to use. There were, he, he looked at the sun, mathematically figured out how far it was from the earth that I, I can't even fathom that. But they did it. And these magi that we're talking about here in Matthew chapter 2, that's who these guys were. They were, they were these kinds of guys. They were no dummies. And they looked up one night, and all of a sudden, there's, there's something there that should not be there. And they're surprised by it. And then, they're not surprised by it. They know there's been a prophecy about this. They have anticipated it. They have expected it. There's probably all kinds of scientific explanations. And if you really go to research, you'll find that, that maybe, maybe, uh, Saturn and Jupiter, those two planets lined up in this one unique time in history. They lined up in a way that made this super bright star that these magi maybe saw. Or maybe, maybe there's a comet that came through at that time that some, some people can, can map that out and, and think that maybe, a com- maybe there's a scientific explanation for it. But what I tend to think, and you read about this in Luke chapter 2, is that when Jesus is born... The glory of the Lord shone around the shepherds as they hear the announcement of the baby that's born. And I believe that that glory of the Lord that shone around them was so bright that hundreds, thousands, I don't even know, miles and miles away in Babylon, these guys that are looking at the sky see the glory of the Lord shining around the shepherds and they know this is not a star that we have seen before. A star has appeared off to the west, and we have to follow it. We have to see it because that star represents the king. And so they gather up their things. They probably have an entire group of people that travel with them, and they head off to the west. The star probably, it's hard to know exactly, what happened, but the star probably does not stay in the sky hovering over wherever Jesus, wherever Mary carries Jesus. There's a star above. I don't think that's the picture. I think the star appeared. They saw it. They knew what it was, and they began to head that way. And they don't know exactly where it is. That's why when they get there, they go to the capital city. They go to Jerusalem, and they begin to ask around. They want to know 
Who, where is this king that we saw the star, we saw the light, we know something was out of the ordinary, so now we've come to find out, where is this king, who is he? And they begin to ask around. They begin to ask all over Jerusalem, constantly asking everyone. And word gets out that there's this, there's this group of these, these wise men, there's this whole huge group that has come, a conglomerate of group that has come from the east, They're showed up in Jerusalem and they're asking, where is the king? Because everyone must know, right, there was this star. There was this bright light. These wise men, they believed the prophecies. They traveled a great distance with a considerable expense because they longed to come and to worship. They longed to come and to bestow honor to the one who had been born. They knew, they knew a new king had shown up. So they begin to ask around, and that asking around causes unrest all over Jerusalem. In fact, Matthew tells us all of Jerusalem was troubled with the reigning king. The reigning king is Herod. We see first those ones who come to visit the new king. But the second group in this group of visitors is the one who wants to come. Herod. Herod the great. Herod the great was was the king over Jerusalem. In fact, his title was the king of the Jews. 40 BC or roughly there, Herod the great was was the the son of Herod Antipor. Herod Antipor was was he was the leader of of Palestine. He was the he was the leader of the Jews in Israel and in Jerusalem. He had been placed. Herod Antipor had been placed into power by Julius Caesar, who, who was then the emperor in Rome. Julius Caesar is killed. Her, uh, Octavian and Antony become the the, the co leaders at that point. And Octavian, who is known as Caesar Augustus puts in charge uh, Herod, the, the, the son of Herod Antipor, Herod the Great, becomes the leader over Israel. He becomes the Jewish liaison, the one who is to, is to control the Jews for the empire, for the Roman Empire. And so Herod is in charge of Jerusalem and in charge of that Palestinian Canaan area. But Herod, Herod the Great is really not all that great. He was, he was a, a, a great politician. He knew exactly what to do to lead people. In fact, he knew that he was not a Jew. He lacked true Jewish heritage. He was an Edomite. And so uh, he, right away as he came into power, he married a Jewish heiress so that he would have some credibility with the Jews. And so he married a woman named Miriam, and he makes himself more acceptable to the Jews. He was super, he was super clever. He was well-spoken. He was brave and courageous. He was a, a strong leader. There's all kinds of things that you can point back to Herod the Great and the accomplishments that he had. He was a great builder. He built theaters, and, and he built a great fortress. He was, he was the architect of many cities. Um, he even began the rebuilding of, of the temple that happened just before Jesus' time. He cared for the poor and the destitute. At times, when, when a great famine broke out, he would go and melt down some of the gold that he had uh, so that he might be able to feed the poor and, and, and care for their needs. 
he worked really, really well with the religious politicians. And we'll even see that in this story. He, he had some rapport with the chief priests and, and, the, and the Sadducees and the, and the scribes and the Pharisees. He was able to work with them and, and he, was a, he was a clever politician. He was a strong leader. But Herod also was incredibly jealous he was super suspicious. He, he had a, a cruel streak. He, had, he, was, he was merciless in much of what he did. His brother-in-law, the, 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 the brother of the Jewish heiress that he married, he had him drowned because he was afraid that he might try to take over the throne. He also had that wife, Miriam. He, he had her killed as well. She had two sons with Herod. He had them killed. He even had a, a third son executed because he was so afraid that someone might come and try to take his power to steal his throne away that anytime anyone had the possibility of overthrowing him, he had them executed. He was so merciless. This is a story that might help you understand them best. He was so merciless that when he was on his deathbed, when he knew his time was near, he had his guards go out and they began to arrest most of the distinguished citizens in the city of Jerusalem. He gathered all of these distinguished citizens up. He held them together and gave instructions that on the moment of his death, when his last breath expired, he wanted all of these distinguished citizens in Jerusalem executed all at once. And he said, I want there to be mourning in Jerusalem when I die. I want tears to flow throughout the city at my passing. Herod was ruthless. He was cruel and merciless. And all of those things, as horrible as they are, they all might pale in comparison to the infanticide that Herod is about to commit right here. Herod does not take kindly to a threat against his throne. He will do whatever it takes to destroy a rival. His hate and his vengeance are so strong that he will do anything, he will do anything to get rid of a rival to his throne. And so as he hears this rumbling about this new king of the Jews that is raised by these magi as they come to Jerusalem. He calls them in. He gives them direction. He tells them exactly where they need to go and he requires them. When you go, come back, bring word to me because I also want to go and worship the new king. A blatant, a blatant lie. He doesn't want to worship any kind of new king. He wants to put an end to a claim against his throne. His response, his response to the coming Savior, his response to a new king of the Jews is hatred, is repulsion, is vile. His response is to have him destroyed. But there's a third group in this story. There's those who come, the Magi come to visit. There's Herod who wants to visit so that he can put an end to it. But there's a third group who doesn't visit at all. There's a third group in here that we see the, the priests and the scribes, they, they don't visit at all. 
When the visitors come to Jerusalem, they, they, they wander around, they're asking, who, who is this? Who, who, where, where is this new king that we saw the star? We're, we're here to see, we want to worship, we want to bestow honor on the new king. And so they begin to ask around, and as they do that, Herod is troubled, all Jerusalem is troubled, and so Herod calls in his, his religious politicians. He calls in the chief priests. He calls in the scribes, the lawyers, the Jewish lawyers, the ones that understood the law. He calls them in and he says to them, where is this, this king to be born? These, these guys are here. They've, they understood the prophecies. They believed it. They saw a star. What is it? What am I missing? And they don't even have to wonder. They quickly, they easily knew the prophecy that these Magi believed in, believed so much that they traveled hundreds or thousands of miles to be there. Easily, quickly, they said, well, it's Bethlehem in Judea. It's written by the prophet. Micah is the prophet that's quoted here in Matthew chapter 2. It's written by the prophet, O you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah. You're by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler, one who will be a shepherd of my people Israel. These scribes, these chief priests, these teachers of the law, they had all, they had all the information. It wasn't difficult for them to come up with this quote. They probably, all of them, probably could have walked right into the room as Herod asked the question and given exactly the answers that Herod needed. They had all the information, but they had none of the transformation. They understood They understood everything that was in that prophecy. But they had none of the transformation that the Magi did as they began to come. And for most of us in the church today, that is the greatest tragedy. Not the vile and the hatred and the repulsion that Herod has, but instead the apathy that we found in the priests and the scribes. You would hope these religious leaders, you would hope these teachers of the law, you would hope these ones that had read this prophecy and knew the law and knew the promise that there was to be a Messiah and that there was to be a coming king, that there was to be a savior that was on his way. You would think that these guys would be the ones when the Magi show up and they begin asking all around Jerusalem. You would think they would be the ones that say, we know exactly where he's supposed to be born. Let's go and find him. Come on, I'll take you there myself. It's just a few miles down the road. We'll travel there together. We will go together and I'll show you exactly where it's to be. I'm so grateful, I'm so excited that the one that has been promised has finally come. The teachers of the law, the ones with the information, they should have been the ones leading the way. But instead, in their apathy, they said, here's the information that you need to know. And that was the end of it. They turned their back on the one who had been born just a few miles south. This wasn't the first time, nor would it be the last time, that they turned their back on Jesus. The Magi, though, they hear, they get the instructions, and they head off. And as they head off, all of a sudden, it looks like here that star reappears 
they've gotten the information now that they're to head to Bethlehem, and so they, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose again went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, it says in verse 10, they didn't respond with hatred and vile. They didn't respond with repulsion and anger like Herod did. They didn't respond with apathy and neglect like the scribes and Pharisees did. In verse 10 it says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They entered into the home where the child was and they opened up their treasures and they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. The Magi, they came to worship. They came to worship the king of the Jews. They came to worship the one who had been sent. They came to worship the Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament prophecies. They came to worship. The worship team is going to come and lead us as we close this morning. I just want to ask you how you come this morning. Do you come threatened and angry like Herod? Does the thought, does the thought of Jesus and his leadership and direction in your life, does that get under your skin? And you want to push back? And you want to kill whatever it is that begins to stir in you as you come face to face with Jesus? Or do you come today apathetic and indifferent? You know the information. You've been around long enough. This Matthew chapter 2 story is not new to you. You've known it and understood it and heard it and listened to it and read it. You know all the stories. You know all the prophecies. You can quote all the information, but in the end, you turn your back. Or do you come today believing do you come today rejoicing exceedingly with great joy because there is a Savior that has been born? Jesus Christ, King of the Jews, the one who was promised for years has come. And so we come today opening up our treasures and we worship with exceeding joy. I hope that's how you come this morning. I hope that's how you come to this season that God might lead us to worship him. Will you stand with me as we close this morning? Will 
to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you.